This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's got curly, fluffy, soft black hair, and she's very adorable. And she's a part of our family, and we care a lot about taking good care of her. And that includes feeding her high-quality dog food like Merrick's. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. They always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Merrick creates homestyle recipes like Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato or Grammy's Pot Pie, so you can feel good about what you're feeding your pet. I mean, you know, you come home from being out, and your dog is there to greet you, and, like, that's one of the best things about having a pet, you know? You come home, the dog's happy to see you, and they're hungry. And you want to reciprocate that good feeling they give you. When you walk in the door, you want to give to them in the form of some high-quality food. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. It's been made the same way since the 30s. You know, it's like it's basically the the Russian equivalent of helmets, but it's like this is classic Soviet thing. And so when Russians are, like, when they think mayonnaise, well, that's kind of their platonic idea of mayonnaise that most of them have. Is this stuff that's actually like a formula that Mickey Gon supposedly personally approved because when he was a commissar of the food industry, it's like that was one of the things that he did. He had to sign the, you know, the official Soviet, you know, recipe for every kind of, uh, of mass-produced food. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This week, we got a story to share with you. It's from our friends at the podcast 99% Invisible, which is a really great show about design and architecture. Each episode they do explores some overlooked object that has a big impact on the world. Sometimes that object is an airport carpet or a revolving door. This one we have today is about a cookbook, one that came out of a revolution changed the course of Russian food forever. Here's 99% Invisible producer Lasha Madan, who'll be joined by host Roman Mars. I'll let Lasha and Roman take it from here. Hi, I'm Lasha, and this is Babushka. Trust me, she's about to be your favorite Russian grandma. If there's one thing you need to know about Babushka, it's this. If you exist in her orbit, she will make sure you are fed. Even if you show up at her home unannounced, Babushka will find a way to assemble a table full of offerings. Because, like many emigrants of the former Soviet Union, her small apartment is brimming with enough food and supplies to last months. You know, just in case. Babushka's full name is Yelena Shuyer. And she is the grandmother of my partner, Mark. At 83, she's got this boisterous laugh. And she's unwavering in her love for bread, though technically it's been years since her doctor has allowed her to eat any. What kind of foods did you grow up eating? Like, what, what kind of meals do you remember eating? I was born in 1938. In 19... 19- uh, 41, start Second War. Yeah. And we leave Ukraine and go to Kazakhstan, like refugee. They could only grow one thing in that dry Kazakh soil, melons. For a time, melons were Babushka's only source for anything sweet. We don't have nothing. I don't see sugar. It's very bad time. It's very, very bad time. Mm-hmm. 
Babushka doesn't consider herself much of a cook, but she's always sharing her recipes with me aloud. While we're in a car, on a walk, at the table, she tells me how many hours to boil beef tongue before pulling it off the stove. The answer is three. Or how she makes her farmer's cheese and the honey cake recipe she learned from her mom. In Kazakhstan, Over the years, crossing the Bay Bridge to visit Babushka in San Francisco has become a kind of ritual. And food is always central. If we weren't meeting over a meal, at the very least, we were talking about one. When the pandemic arrived and we had to put those shared meals on pause, Mark and I wanted to try making Russian food ourselves. So one day, Babushka sent us off with a book, a cookbook, one that she pulled off a shelf where it sat untouched for years. It was heavy like a textbook, a teal-colored hardcover. It was one of the oldest books in her possession, literally falling apart at the seams, but stunning at the same time. As an adult, Babushka tells me, she moved to Moscow and got married. And that's when this book came into her life. It was a wedding gift. Officially titled The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food, it was simply known as Kniga, the book because it was one of the only cookbooks to exist in the Soviet Union. Babushka, do you remember the last time you opened the book of Tasty and Healthy Food before giving it to us? Like, had it been years? <laughs> oh, I love that laugh. No, I don't remember. Okay, so who's that? Oh, that's Mark. He's translating in the background. Lentils appeared one time. I had no idea how to cook them, so I crawled into the book to figure out how to cook them. You know how to cook them, but I don't. In Moscow, Babushka had been a librarian. She'd amassed an enormous quantity of books. And when she finally fled the Soviet Union as a Jewish refugee, she had to leave boxes of those books behind. And yet, here's a book she chose to bring with her, one that she's rarely ever used. The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food is peppered with glossy photographs of really lavish-looking spreads, and it's dense with text. There are recipes for lentils and crab salad and how to cook buckwheat nine different ways. But this book was meant to do so much more than show people how to make certain dishes. It turns out this was the cookbook of the Soviet Union for decades, a Stalinist document that was created to address one of the most fundamental problems of the USSR, hunger. And the book was at the vanguard of a radical Soviet food experiment that, despite its numerous obstacles, transformed Russian cuisine. Today, what's usually served in Russian homes and restaurants is Soviet food. Food that's generously dolloped with ingredients like mayonnaise and dill. But Russian food before the Soviet Union, that was another story. Well, it depended on where you fit into Russian society. Edward Geist is a historian who studies the Soviet Union. What people of different classes ate in pre-revolutionary Russia differed enormously. The Russian diet also varied a ton because the Russian empire was so large. You don't expect, you know, people living in the Siberian Arctic to eat the same thing as, you know, as like someone in Odessa or someone in the Caucasus. Tsarist Russia had both extreme poverty and extreme opulence. Most of the population, though, like 95 percent, was living on the edge on a very basic diet. The basic Russian diet consisted of a lot of fermented foods. The Russians really love the taste of sour. Dara Goldstein is a food scholar. She's been tracing the evolution of Russian food since the 10th century. 
There were all kinds of mushrooms and berries that they foraged, wonderful dairy products and cabbage soup. So that's basically what they ate. And it was pretty monotonous, but it wasn't horrible in terms of nutritive value. It's just that they often didn't have enough and didn't even have enough bread if the harvest was bad. The aristocracy, on the other hand, you know, are fabulously wealthy. It's like enormous quantities of caviar, but there'd be things that like, we have this borscht, this borscht that literally has like 30 or 40 different ingredients in it and like seven different kinds of meat. And for a couple hundred years, that's how it went. Most Russians were subsisting off the land, and when the crops would fail, which they did with some regularity, things would get dire. In a way, the problem of food superseded all other problems in Russia. During World War I, food riots broke out between merchants and peasants because of high prices and food shortages. These battles, largely over grain and sugar, kept resurfacing. And then in 1917, revolution swept through Russia, and it gave way to a grand new country, the USSR. Picture a region encompassing 11 time zones, 15 republics, a sixth of the world's landmass. This was the Soviet Union, and in the spirit of uniting all its disparate parts under socialism, its plan was this. We will share one constitution, one national anthem, and one cuisine. New foods, it was decided, were needed to help define the new empire. All ties to aristocracy needed to be broken. This was a revolution, after all. Under Lenin, who was Soviet Russia's first leader, the Bolsheviks were looking for a way to feed everybody, separate themselves from decadence, and embrace the modern era. No more foraging for berries or mushrooms from the forest. No more following grandma's recipes or cooking from scratch. All of that, dear comrades, was a waste of time. The now old-fashioned Russian food was declared ideologically unfit. It was clear that something about food needed to change, but there was no blueprint to get there. No one had ever prescribed what a communist revolution should taste like. There wasn't some passage in Marx that said buckwheat is meant to be the food of the socialist future. Lenin had tried setting up state-run canteens, a place where workers could fuel up with the appropriate amount of calories. But the canteens were run by amateur cooks who turned out terrible food. In the mid-1920s, Lenin died, Stalin came to power, and the Soviet Union was still a starving country. With the chaos of Stalin's forced collectivization policies, he starved the countryside to feed the cities. At times, organized teams of policemen would break into peasant households, taking everything edible. All this led to a major Soviet famine, which killed at least five million people, mostly across Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Hungry peasants roamed the countryside, desperately searching for anything to eat. Corpses piled up along the roads. It became clear that Stalin's policies were pushing the country deeper into crisis. He desperately needed to turn things around. Lenin had promised the people the basics, land, peace, and bread. But Stalin decided bread wasn't enough. People needed to feel like they had a sense of luxury in their lives. They needed a reason to still believe in the Soviet Union. There was a sense that the country was exhausted, that the country made huge sacrifices. And Stalin sort of reintroduced some of the you know, bourgeois values. Anya von Bremsen is a food writer who was born in Soviet Russia. It was understood that people needed some kind of relief and reprieve and um, 
that the Soviet food industry needed to, you know, get its shit together and give something to the people. The revolution was still young, the country in crisis, and Stalin was desperate to give the people symbols of joy. And so, just a few years after that disastrous famine, Stalin was like, forget bread. People need champagne and chocolate and caviar. In this campaign to uh, make life more joyous, which is literally what Stalin said in a 1935 speech, he made it allowable to indulge. So part of your responsibility as a good Soviet citizen to build a perfect socialist state was to participate in the good life too. Coming up, Lasha and Roman meet the man tasked with making Soviet food more joyous. And to do that, he looks for inspiration in a very unexpected place. Stick around. Hope you're hungry, because it's time for some ads. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? 
all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, I go to the home of legendary chef and teacher Jacques Pepin. He cooked for three French presidents, but he's spent most of his career demonstrating basic cooking tips to regular folks. These days, he does it on Instagram, making videos about peeling asparagus, or as he told me, sharing his secret for delicious spam. It's funny because I remember spam during the war uh, in France. <clears throat> we had Cannes. My father was in the resistance occasionally. I guess he could get some kind of a sardine, whatever, from American soldier or wherever he could get it. And certainly my mother would do a lot with one can of span. She would extend it with, uh, you know, cabbage or potato or to, to, to make uh, a lot about a little bit of uh, that type of protein. So there I did some steak of spam by putting a mixture, a bit of honey, maybe ketchup, sugar to glaze it into the oven. It's good. Jacques also shows me his books of menus, which list what he's served at dinner parties going back more than 50 years, with each menu signed by the guests. It's a beautiful tradition for someone who's spent his life in the kitchen. My conversation with Jacques Pepin is up now. Check it out. Okay, back to our show, which this week is a story by Lasha Madan and Roman Mars from the podcast 99% Invisible. In the 1930s, Joseph Stalin took a new approach to food in the Soviet Union. He thought citizens should have delicious and luxurious food. And if they did, he figured they'd trust the government more. And in his quest to create this joyous and indulgent Soviet diet, Stalin decided to enlist the help of a guy named Anastas Mikoyan. Anastas Mikoyan was one of the most fascinating figures of the Soviet epoch because he came to power as one of Stalin's guys. In the mid-30s, Stalin made Mikoyan the people's commissar of the food industry. So the Soviet food industry is basically set up according to what Mikoyan felt that it should be like. Mikoyan was a mustachioed Armenian. He eventually became one of the most significant statesmen in the Soviet Union. He somehow survived decades of purges, always managing to stay on the good side of whoever was in power. He was a pragmatist, but also a dreamer. And he loved food. Stalin tasked him with a seemingly insurmountable problem. Figure out how to feed a starving country and keep the food riots at bay. And ultimately, unite the Soviet bloc under a new and happy cuisine. To Mikoyan, the solution was clear. His new cuisine would be cheap, high-calorie, mass-distributed, and prepackaged. And for that, naturally, he turned to the most un-Soviet place imaginable. 
a place that caters to the need for instant gratification better than anywhere else in the world, the U.S. of A. Well, what do they eat in America? It's like, well, they eat they eat a lot of meat. They eat things like you know hot dogs and uh, and hamburgers. You know, they have uh, processed uh, breakfast cereals. Like they they have all of this sort of uh, industrially produced, convenient, sort of calorically dense food. It turns out American food, and specifically its innovations in mass production at the time, checked a lot of boxes for Mikhail as he looked to make over the Soviet diet. At the time, most of Russia's food production was small-scale and artisanal. It wasn't scalable in a way that could feed the whole country. Mikian was interested in the factory lines that were feeding the workers in America. The idea being, it's not capitalism we're interested in. It's modernity. We can import these American products and machines and turn them socialist. It's socialist because it's being made in like a, a state-owned factory. The fact that it looks, you know, exactly like the, the American original that we copied it from, it's like, well, you know, that just makes it modern. And so in 1936, Stalin sent Mikhail to the U.S. He gave his food commissar a mission to scour America for the secrets of capitalist food manufacturing. On an August morning, he and his wife landed in New York. And from there, they toured 12,000 miles across the country. Officially, Mikian was tasked with buying industrial equipment for the Soviet food industry. But he got a little carried away. Mikian quickly became fascinated by things like orange juice and frozen fruit. He visited canning factories and slaughterhouses. He studied metal jar lids and corrugated cardboard. As he toured the country, Mikian inspected every aspect of the production line. His memoirs are full of awe for the things he ate, like hamburgers. Mikhail wrote, for a busy man, it is very convenient. In the burger, he saw a cheap and filling snack. Great for workers on the go. Mikhail could picture it all in his head. Here were some of the foundations of what would become Soviet cuisine. A plan to feed the masses. A way to save the USSR from its food crisis. Mikhail came back to the Soviet Union and started to build. His hamburger factories were built to churn out two million patties a day. And within a year, Mikayan's meat plant, called Mikayanovsky, produced over a hundred kinds of sausages. He oversaw the production of canned fish and corn and peas, cheeses and meats, juices and popcorn, cornflakes and champagne. I could go on. And of course, a high-calorie condiment that could go in every salad. Mayonnaise. And it's been made the same way since the 30s. You know, it's like it's basically the, the Russian equivalent of Helmets, but it's like this is classic Soviet thing. Right. Everyone knows the bottles. Right. And so when Russians are, like, when they think mayonnaise, well, that's kind of their platonic idea of mayonnaise that most of them have. Is this stuff that's actually like a formula that Mickey Gon supposedly personally approved because when he was the commissar of the food industry, it's like that was one of the things that he did. He had to sign the, you know, the official Soviet, you know, recipe for every kind of, uh, of mass-produced uh, food. Through it all, Mikhail was a dogged micromanager. He taste-tested every new product, approved every last label design, and he named a lot of the products after himself. To many Russians, Mikhail was just a brand name for the meat products he developed. He was like some mythical old uncle, a Soviet chef boyardee. Behind the scenes, though, Mikhail was churning out product after product. And since the average Russian rarely left the country, it required special permission from the state to leave— a lot of people had never before seen some of the foods he was mass-producing. When things like oranges and hard cheeses and cornflakes arrived, some found it weird. 
or just confusing? There were certain cases where people really just didn't know what to do with some of this stuff because it was not the sort of thing that Russians had typically seen before. As these weird new foods started to spread, Mikhail found himself touring villages to give food directives. He urged Soviets to embrace a spicy aromatic condiment that he said every American housewife keeps in her cupboard, ketchup. He proclaimed tomato juice as the Soviet national drink. He advised people who had never heard of cornflakes to try putting them in their soup like crackers. He gave how-tos on eating oranges. And so, like, they get an orange, and they try and just bite into it with the peel on it. And, of course, it tastes disgusting because they're eating the peel. And they had to be told that it's like, well, they're supposed to peel it first. Mikhail realized people needed to know about these foods in order to be willing to eat them. They needed to become cultured Soviet citizens. And despite all his travels telling people what to eat and how, it was impossible for him to educate everyone. He needed a new way to reach the masses. How could he spread a single new food culture to over 150 million people? And so in 1939, he decided to publish a book. The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food. The one that landed in my lap by way of babushka. This book became the official blueprint on how to eat Soviet food. Written by a team of food scientists and spearheaded by Mikoyan, the book provides nutritional guidelines, advertisements for prepackaged foods, and hundreds of recipes. And the Soviet state cranked out millions and millions of copies. How many copies of the book do you have? Looking at my shelf, I have there's one, two, three, four, five. In total, the book has over 1,400 recipes spanning 400 pages. It also has descriptions of Mikayan's industrial progress and advice on things like proper food storage and table manners. So the recipes are all in the middle. And the sidebars will contain all sorts of uh, descriptions, often just descriptions of all these interesting new industrial food products that the Soviet Union is producing. On each page, banners above or below the recipes celebrate Mikhail's products, like Soviet soy sauce and frozen pilmeni. And in the sidebars are descriptions of industrial progress, like the various attempts to grow pineapples in the USSR. The book offers aesthetic tips, too. Each dish should be delicious and have visual appeal, it reads. And the images, of course, are gorgeous. The first thing that struck me were just the photographs, which are fantastic. I mean, fantastic in both senses of the word. The inside cover shows tables crowded with silver and crystal, platters of bread and fruit, boxes of chocolates and trays of caviar nestled between intricate tea sets and slices of cake. A whole suckling pig sits in the center. It represented all the luxury that Stalin had envisioned. They have this vintage look to them, beautiful colors, and conveying this sense of abundance. That was the primary thing. Like endless food, endless variety. The book incorporated dishes from across the Soviet republics. Plov from Uzbekistan, borscht from Ukraine, although the origins of these foods were not always disclosed. Mikhail was showing that we are all Soviet. And hey, any simple worker or teacher or doctor can now buy a bottle of champagne or cook a lobster in white wine sauce, as shown on page 144. Life is good. 
Over the years, the book kept getting revised and republished to match the Soviet Union's changing ideologies. All specific references to a dish being Jewish or American, for example, eventually disappeared. But throughout all the editions, one thing was constant. The book evoked a peculiar optimism. It took on an almost aggressive cheeriness. And by the 1950s, it became a staple in people's homes. Anya von Bremsen has studied a lot of cookbooks that have come out of dictatorships, from the Francoist regime in Spain to fascist Italy. She says, there's just nothing else like the book. It was a way of acculturating people who previously didn't have access to anything, like, you know, let's say peasants or workers, to become cultured Soviet citizens who knew how to use the right fork. It's kind of just this amazing, amazing document. With the help of this book, at first gradually, but then faster and faster, Mikayan's foods became Russian foods. But what's interesting is that they were, they were very patriotically packaged. To generations of Russians, this was our food. So to, for me to read it and to learn this, oh my God, you know, he, he looked at American, he basically copied American. Uh, or, you know, Frankfurters, Russians love Frankfurters, Sasiski. That was actually a German recipe. So the origins of so many of these patriotic, you know, beloved items are in fact foreign. Many foods eventually became altered, russified versions of the American food that inspired it. Like those hamburgers Mikhail had encountered with such wonder. They turned into a meat and bread patty called katliette, which became a Soviet staple. The book features multiple recipes on how to make it, and it's a dish that's still super popular today. But there was one dish that really took off maybe more than any other. It's all the way at the back of the book. You have to flip past the soups and meat dishes until you reach the desserts. Ice cream. It was the ultimate success of the Soviet food project. Our ice cream was the best ice cream. We were always told that. And in fact, it was like really good. Wealthy Russian aristocratic types, well, they ate ice cream before the revolution, right? But not in any sort of great quantity. At the time, the idea that any Soviet citizen could buy ice cream from someone off the street for a modest price was unheard of. But that changed when Mikhail started mass-producing ice cream in the way he had observed in the U.S. In fact, he lobbied so hard for it that Stalin once joked that Mikhail must have loved ice cream more than communism. The Soviet Union's first ice cream factory reached a total volume of 46,000 tons of ice cream a year. Under Mikayan's leadership, a completely new culture around ice cream started to form. All ice cream vendors wore special uniforms, white caps, aprons, and overcoats. People would go out in the dead of winter and hang around just eating ice cream in their winter jackets. Here's Babushka again. In Russia, cold. It's very, very cold. And people go with, with ice cream on the street. You, you can understand this. I can picture it, but it's hard for me to understand. <laughs> Nobody can understand it. But in <laughs> Russia, it's true. Why? Why do you think so? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we like ice cream. The book features a number of different ice cream recipes and details about their nutritional information. And then it goes, in terms of taste and quality, ice cream made by the food industry always surpasses ice cream that is produced at home. As in, here are a handful of recipes, but don't bother trying them. And maybe that was the whole point. The book was a cookbook, yeah, 
but having people make its recipes wasn't the goal. More so, it was meant to show you what was worth desiring, and that socialism would get you there eventually. But the truth was much more grim. In fact, most of Babushka's memories are not of lavish spreads and homemade desserts, but of food scarcity. Here's Mark again, translating Babushka's Russian. Babushka has always had this impulse to feed others. But when she was a child, it was tough for her mom to watch Babushka give away food because they didn't have much at all. <laughs> she says when she was little, she'd get sick. Her mom would cook her chicken broth. And she would, there were like boys just like outside in like the courtyard of the house or whatever in the yard. And she would feed them through the window with her spoon. What? <laughs> they would just be standing outside your window with their mouth open? Huh. Yes. <laughs> she did like, like little uh, baby seagulls. <laughs> These are funny stories now, but that kind of hunger, Babushka says, it's difficult for us kids to imagine. It's impossible to imagine. I hope, I wish for you never to know that, never to see it. It is hard to imagine, especially as I flip through pages of the book. Because even as Mikayan was implementing his cuisine and revising this cookbook, and certain foods were indeed taking off. His successes were papering over a dark, underlying reality. That hunger was still the primary struggle. Because it turns out many of the foods that Mickey Yan's factories were churning out day after day were rarely ever available for purchase. Even though everyone knew about these foods, the grocery shelves were mostly empty. For decades, outside of a handful of stores in the big cities, there weren't many places you could just plunk down your rubles and buy this stuff. Most of the food, it turned out, had been disappearing into networks of privileged elites long before it even reached the shelves. Everyone tried to befriend a butcher. You'd smile extra hard as you walked in the store. You had to, if you had any hope of getting a good piece of meat, or any meat at all. Yeah, I mean, food was the object of, you know, constant uh, longing, desire, anxiety, it was really pretty much the focus of our lives. Like, you know, I literally had a banana maybe like four times in my life. Because food supply was unpredictable, Anya told me that anytime she left the house, she'd carry a mesh bag crumpled in her pocket. The bag was called a voiska, which means what if. As in, what if I stumble upon a store with food inside it today? So there was this kind of chase. The unpredictability, oh, you know, you pass a store and there's a long line for something. Some people just would get into the line without even uh, asking what it was for. Meanwhile, at home, the book offered salivating images of the kind of food you were supposed to be able to eat. So we looked at those pictures, you know, I think there's one picture of, you know, suckling pig. And there's one picture of oysters. And it's kind of like, okay, we never, we've never seen it. We don't know what this is. But, you know, it's, it's, it was advertised. Every cookbook sells a fantasy, of course. But it's the discrepancy between the abundance on the pages and the absence in the shops that makes the book so jarring. The book suggested everyone adopt a four-course lunch. But much of the population would batch cook for the week with whatever few ingredients they had on hand. It's clear who the book was written for. 
To the Soviet housewife, it reads, in bold typeface on page one. But for many Soviet women, the book often lived on a shelf, somewhere out of reach. Back in Babushka's apartment, I wanted to try cooking something from the book together. I was curious how these recipes held up. Mm, that's good. The first couple are always We were trying to make blin, a thin Russian pancake made with leavened wheat batter. Best you see what blin. Little, 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 like hole. Yeah. Uh, you see, uh, yes, yes. They're so thin that you can see through uh, them. Yeah, yeah. We're not quite there it's... yet. <laughs> <laughs> I do consider myself a good cook, but the truth is, I was skeptical of how this would turn out. The book's recipes have incredibly vague instructions. Instructions like, put meat in oven until cooked, then serve. There are no meal preparation times, no serving sizes. The most frequent instruction in the book is to open a tin can of some kind. As I mixed the batter together, Babushka flipped through the book and I peered over her shoulder. We landed on a couple recipes that caused her to chuckle. Recipes she thinks no one would have followed. Meals that called for real crab meat or fresh figs or game birds. It all made me think that this cookbook was useless. But Anya told me the book, despite its flaws, did have its uses. Anya remembers noticing how the copies of the book she saw in other people's homes would be heavily annotated. People would write over the recipes, or write in the margins. It became a way of taking the kitchen back, taking something that was produced by the Soviet Union and making it your own. It was almost like this repository of this private knowledge, because the book is like very much represents the Soviet state. But people sort of, you know, made accommodations with a totalitarian regime by, uh, you know, by, by personalizing these documents. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, there was a lot of hunger and anger again. A lot of people lost everything. To many, these foods conjure up nostalgia from that terrible time. And these Soviet food brands endure today. People love them. And perhaps if you knew how to use it, the book was actually useful. Maybe not always in its recipes, per se, but it did offer practical guidance in making the most of whatever was at hand. With advice like, adding mayonnaise to your food is a great digestive aid, and advice on how to portion out meals so it looks like there's a lot on your plate. It did help cooks adapt to the occasional lack of even the most basic produce. Babushka, Mark, and I finally sat down to eat the bline. Okay. So, Babushka, what do you think of the bline? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Be honest. Yeah? No. Sorry, no. It's... <laughs> Sorry, no, it's, it's, not, it's not bline. It's a little <laughs> embarrassing. The bline is far too thick and yeasty. But we eat it anyway, with sour cream and smoked salmon and dill. 
At the table, Babushka looks at the spread and says, you know, the book also tells you how to properly set a table. Oh yeah, I say, are we doing it right? She shakes her head. Any cookbook has the potential to shape a person's diet or habits, or sit on a shelf unused. And the same can be said about this one. But one thing is clear. Whether you loved it or hated it or just let it sit on your shelf, over time, the book became uniquely and authentically Russian. Or at least Russian enough that despite all its flaws, when Babushka finally left the Soviet Union, she lugged it with her this thing that was produced by the state she was fleeing. And when she got to San Francisco, she unpacked her boxes, pulled this book out, and stood it up on a shelf. Years later, she dusted it off and handed it to me. That's Roman Mars and Lasha Madan of the podcast 99% Invisible. You can check out all their episodes at 99percentinvisible.org. Next week on the show, I sit down with comedian and actor Michael Ian Black. We have a lot of fun together, but the conversation also turns more serious when we discuss a topic he wrote a whole book about, masculinity. Like, why is steak perceived as more masculine than salad? That's next week. While you wait for that one, make sure you check out last week's show with legendary chef and teacher Jacques Pepin. And please follow or subscribe to our podcast in your podcasting app. Thanks. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Lasha Madon and edited by Christopher Johnson and Joe Rosenberg. Mix and tech production by Amita Ganatra. Music by our director of sound, Sean Rial. Delaney Hall is the executive producer. Kurt Kolstad is the digital director. Liz Boyd did the fact-checking. Max Krivashayev helped with translation. The rest of the team includes Emmett Fitzgerald, Vivian Leigh, Chris Berube, Sophia Klotzker, and me, Roman Mars. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Emily from Moscow, Russia, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.